2: Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, a special edition of our program, we'll take an in-depth look at Israel. Daniel Gordas responds to the labeling of Israel as a, quote,
3: colonial state. The whole idea of colonialism means some empire sent you there to expand its borders. Nobody sent the Jews anywhere. Gordas also looks at the unity of his embattled state. We are probably more united as a people than we ever were.
2: And Dan Senor looks at the origin of Zionism in Theodore Herzl.
1: He says the Jews have no real rights in many of these quote-unquote enlightened places. And the Balfour Declaration. Is one of the most important documents in Zionist history.
2: We've got all this and more. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me, please, on X at Hugh Hewitt. And follow this program there as well at Town Hall Review. We're going to begin and end today with Israel and the issues that have emerged in the wake of what I have called the GoPro pogrom, the October 7th massacre that the terrorist film, the one that changed Israel and is indeed changing the shape of the modern Middle East. Israel has changed, but the world is changing in front of us. I imagine you were surprised, I know I was, in the immediate aftermath of the attacks when public displays of support on campuses across the nation were not for Israel, but for those who committed the atrocity, the Palestinian terrorists. In some cases, there were even explicit signs supporting Hamas. One of the arguments we've heard before that Israel is a, quote, colonial state. I turn to Daniel Gordas, author of Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. One of the definitive volumes on the Jewish state. I have never in my life listened to a book, uh, an audiobook twice back to back. I'm now on the third listen to Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn, because boy, does it fill in the gaps that I did not have. As I said, I'm, I'm pretty well educated. I knew a lot about Israel, but I'm not Jewish, and I didn't know about anything from 1897 to 1948. How important is it for the contemporary American to understand that history, Daniel Gordis?
3: Well, it's just, if you think about the American analogy, for example, how is it important to know about the debates that the founding fathers had in America before 1776? If you don't know anything about what happened before 1776, you can't really say anything about why the United States exists. You can't say anything about its dreams, about its purposes, about the reasons that the women and men that created the country got together to do it. And the same thing is true here. Israel did sprout out out of nowhere. The Jews didn't pick the Middle East specifically out of nowhere. Uh, There's a whole history here of why the Jews felt they needed a country, why they believed that country needed to be, and they had a right for it to be here, and so on and so forth. And one can disagree about many different political issues in Israel. A lot of Israelis disagree. Uh, But I think one does have to understand the origins of the story, as in any story, in order to be able to understand how it's playing out now.
2: Now, Daniel, you're very, very rigorously fair. Like, you're not one of these people who say there was nobody in Palestine before the Jews from Europe came into via Theodore Herzl. It's really relentlessly objective. But you do begin at the beginning in sort of uh, prehistory, right up through the demolition of the Second Temple by the Romans and then up to the coining of the term Palestine in 160. How much does that matter when we have the anti-colonialist rhetoric of today? Knowing, as you put it, the Bible is sort of a diary of the Jewish people.
3: You read this book very carefully, my friend, but in any event, um, what I would say is, I think it matters It matters a lot. First of all, again, regardless of what one feels about the issue now, regardless of one where, where one is holding on one particular political issue or military issue or whatever, one of the things that's important in understanding any conflict, by the way, it can be a conflict between two siblings. It can be a conflict between partners. It can be a conflict in business. Try to understand where the other person's coming from, what the other person sees, what the other person believes. Uh, And so this whole colonialist notion, which is, as you point out quite correctly, is becoming a huge issue, especially now. Um, We'll come back to colonialism and whether or not that's a term that's applicable in a second. But why did the Jews come here? Uh, And the reason the Jews came here is because, uh, yes, the Bible is um, the diary of the Jewish people to a certain extent. I think that's that's a thoughtful, for me at least personally, a useful way uh, to think about it. But the Bible is also a book with some historical record. Obviously, the Jews were here for a very long time. That does not give them the right to the land in and of itself. No question. If the Nor- if the Norwegians were to come and say, "Every place that the Vikings ever had, we want it back," that's ludicrous. I'm not. I don't use that analogist in order to say, "Well, we had it once, so we get it back again." But why did they choose to come here? One needs to understand what was in their heart, what was in their soul, in their mind. They had never really left. They've been forced out temporarily, but it was always in their own mind temporarily. And again, disagree with them. You can agree with them. You can partly agree with them. But one can't understand the passion of the Jewish people for recreating their state specifically here without understanding how in our tradition... This was home. This is where our people was born. By the way, that's what the opening sentence of the Israeli Declaration of Independence says. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Um, and in order to understand why the Jews feel the way that they do, or some Jews, not all Jews, but why Israelis especially feel about the land of Israel the way that they do, uh, understanding our longstanding connection to this land is critically important. I hear you mentioned the issue of colonialism, and here I'll only say, for colonialism, one has to be sent. In other words, the, the British sent colonialists to North America. Uh, the Spaniards spent, sent colonialists to South America. Uh, the French sent colonialists to North Africa and many other places. Nobody sent the Jews. It's not colonialism. One can argue the Jews have done this wrong. You can argue the Israelis have done this incorrectly. You can argue that the Israelis are mishandling the current war in one way, that way, or another way. That's all legitimate. But the whole idea of colonialism means some empire sent you there to expand its borders, to expand its landholdings. Nobody sent the Jews anywhere. The Jews went back because it was the only place that they could possibly imagine where the world might finally leave them alone. They had two very incorrect assumptions towards the end of the 19th century. One was they would go back there and the world would leave them alone. And the other was because they would finally have a country of their own, the rest of the world would stop seeing them as being so odd and so always latching on to whatever country was willing to hold on to them. And therefore, anti-Semitism in Europe and the rest of the free world would disappear. Neither of those two things happened. And in that, Theodore Herzl got things entirely wrong. Um, He he was wrong that the world would accept the Jews and that the local Arab population, which he knew very well, existed here. He just thought it would be embraced by the Arab population, and we weren't. Um, And he also thought that once the Jews had a country of their own, the Western world would no longer perceive the Jews as anomalies and would therefore stop hating them. Um, And as we are tragically able to see these days, that didn't happen either.
2: Daniel Gordon, if we gave sort of the basic eighth grade test of American history to American kids today— they might know who Ben Franklin is. They might not know who John Jay is. There would be a spectrum of, of knowledge. What level of historical knowledge do Israelis have about the 50 years prior to the founding of the state? I'm just curious, generally in Israel, yeah. are they as educated about their history as Americans are about our history?
3: Well, Israelis, like Americans, aren't monolithic, right? There are some Americans who got really good educations, who went to really good high schools or good colleges, who could tell you a lot. And there's some Americans who would think Ben Franklin, something about, you know, a kite and lightning, and that would be the end of it. There's a lot of Americans that never heard about Alexander Hamilton until until they went to Broadway. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, so Americans aren't monolithic, and the French aren't monolithic, and the Germans aren't monolithic, and the Israelis aren't monolithic. I would say, as a whole, Israelis tend to know a little bit more about their pre-country history, Um, largely because, of course, it's in the lifetime of their grandparents. There are still many people around today who are alive who fought in our war of independence, which is obviously not the case uh, in Israel. But I would say uh, it's not nearly as good as it needs to be. 2023 was the worst year in Israel's history by far, because between January and September, it was ripped apart by internal divides over revising the Israeli judicial system And that made many people go back to the Declaration of Independence for the very first time and read it and read it carefully and ask themselves why their country was founded. And now that we are really in an existential war, which I don't think most of our viewers and listeners understand why this war is existential, and we can come back to that. But now that we're literally in a war for our lives in this country, um, again, a younger generation has been forced to ask ourselves, so how did we get here? Why does this matter? Who said what? I think we're better educated, but we're also learning very quickly that we also, like Americans, have a much better job to do.
2: Well, what I think is is crucial for people to understand, Daniel Gordas, is that for those fifty years be- before nineteen forty-eight, there wasn't consensus. There were people who wanted to establish a Jewish state. There were people that wanted to establish in Palestine a center of Jewish cultural excellence. There were statists and anti-statists. There were religious Jews and anti-religious Jews. There's David Ben-Gurion, and there's Menachem Begin, and there's Jabotinsky, and there are all sorts of different people. It's a wild mosaic. But what I wanted to ask you most importantly is in the book you say that at times of crisis the Jewish people have always come together. Is that true today, and do you think that will endure? Do you think they will hold together?
3: Uh, first of all, you're right. I think the answer is yes. In this war so far, Israelis have found themselves very much pulled together. After our worst internal divides in history, we are probably more united as a people than we ever were. If on October 5th we were unprecedentedly torn apart and there were people that were talking about the possibility of civil war, then on October 8th, the day after the attack, um, I might think Israelis were together and still remain together more than ever before. Is that going to last forever? Look, it's not going to last forever because part of the reason that we're so united uh, is the crucible of this existential threat. There are guys in tanks who voted for Netanyahu and there's guys in tanks who would never vote for Netanyahu. There's guys in tanks who are religious and have one view of Israel and there's guys in tanks in the same exact tank who have a very different vision. As long as they're in the tank fighting for themselves and their parents and their siblings back home, there's going to be a certain amount of unity.
2: When you have an existential war, and I believe that as a Gentile in America, since the GoPro pogrom erupted, you wrote a lot about Kishinev changing the opinion of Jewry worldwide. That was a very infamous pogrom, where what a hundred people were killed and thousands were terrorized. Doesn't this change? The
3: uh, it was actually less. It was a few dozen. It was a few dozen people. It had an outsized impact because of poetry that was written about it and kind of captured the imagination of Jews and said. This is no way for a people to live. So the actual numbers were relatively small, but the impact on the soul um, was huge.
2: Jewish courage has always triumphed, and Jewish cohesiveness has always come together. But this existential threat we were talking about, how do you defeat that? I I mean, you have to rip the tunnels out. You have to fill them with seawater. And then I think you have to go to war with Hezbollah, don't you, eventually?
3: Yeah. I mean, look, ultimately, Hezbollah cannot be allowed to be where it is now in complete violation night of Resolution 1701, which after the Second Lebanon War said they couldn't be anywhere within those five southern kilometers, and they're all there in in Lebanon. Israel has a lot of work ahead of it. We probably tragically have many hundreds of casualties ahead of us. Uh, Israelis were asleep at the wheel for probably decades and allowed existential threats to grow on our south in Gaza, our north in Lebanon, and off to the east in Iran, There's an awakening in Israel. We can't live this way any longer. And the United States can think what it does. Europe can think what it does. We're going to do here exactly what the United States would do if that threat was coming from Mexico or Canada.
1: Coming up, the origins of modern Israel. He says the Jews have no real rights in many of these, quote unquote, enlightened places. Dan Senor, when the Town Hall Review returns in a moment.
4: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
2: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. In the wake of the horrific attacks of October 7th by Hamas, I found myself scrambling, looking for intelligent voices to sort through what is arguably the most significant challenge for Israel since at least 1973's Yom Kippur War, perhaps even 1948's War of Independence. Dan Sinor is one of the best. His Call Me Back podcast is terrific. Sinor is also the author of The Genius of Israel, the surprising resilience of a divided nation in a turbulent world. I turn to Dan for a history of the Jewish people and the founding of modern Israel. Tell us about the Zionist movement and the founding of the state of Israel, the regathering into Israel of the
5: Jewish people.
1: Well, the architect, the author of Zionism as an idea and as a movement in its modern uh, incarnation was a man by the name of Theodor Herzl, one of my heroes who lived in Vienna He was a journalist in Austria, Uh, secular, very secular Jew, had no real identity religiously with his Judaism or certainly politically with with the state of Israel, the biblical, the biblical origins of Israel. Just wasn't particularly interested in it. And he was a journalist in Austria. He gets assigned to go to, isn't the. You know, late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, he gets assigned to go cover a – for his newspaper, he gets assigned to go cover a trial in Paris of a military officer, a French military officer, who is falsely accused of treason, and he's Jewish. And he goes to cover this trial, and Dreyfus, the, 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 the military officer, the French military officer's name is Dreyfus, so it was later called the Dreyfus Affair – And Dreyfus was falsely accused of treason, and it was clearly an anti-Semitic trial. It was clearly – he was framed because he was Jewish. And Herzl goes to cover this not looking for a a Jewish angle on it. He's just covering the story. And again, keep in mind, he himself, Herzl, has no real connection to Judaism. And he's there, and he's like, this is a total fraud. What's happening to this man? And he realizes it's happening because he's Jewish. And it's sort of a wake-up call, an inflection point for Herzl, where he says, the Jews have no real rights in many of these, quote-unquote, enlightened places. And he – I mean, I'm I'm really now going to short-circuit the history. We can go as deep as you want. But he goes back to Austria, and the Dreyfus affair combined with some other events like it wake him up to the fact that the Jews are always going to be guests of other – countries and other governments, wherever they live, there's been a history of anti-Semitism throughout history, everywhere in the world. I often tell people, give yourself the century test, which is to say, go on Google, type the word in anti-Semitism and type in a century. It could be the 20th century, the 19th century, the 10th century, pick a century. In every century, you will find major waves of sometimes incredibly barbaric anti-Semitic periods somewhere in the world. And so the Dreyfus affair was... Herzl's wake-up call that this is, this is a real problem and this is a consistent problem. And so he basically says the Jews are not really going to ever be able to have continuity if they do not have a state of their own. And he launches a movement formally in the late 1800s that uh, was the Zionist movement, which is, was focused on working with Jewish leaders from around the world on how to, how to return to Israel and build a modern state, western style his vision for it was a western modern flourishing economically f- flourishing culturally flourishing politically state where the jews it's not to say jews wouldn't live elsewhere in the world but there would always be a jewish state that they could call their own
2: old history very quickly after the jews were dispersed by the romans the place was pretty much empty early christianity took up residence in the desert but till Islam arose in the seventh century and it conquered the area. And for many hundreds of years, Islam ruled the area. There was a crusader period of about 200 years, about a thousand to twelve hundred. They fought back and forth about who controlled Jerusalem and the land. Islam eventually won. The Ottomans arrive in about fifteen hundred and they take control of Palestine. The Turks take control of Palestine and they rule it from afar at right up to World War I, Dan, right? World War I is where things start to happen. And we got about three minutes till we come back from break. What happens after World War I in the Middle East?
1: Well, towards the end of the World War I, it was clear that uh, that the Western powers were going to win World War I. And so some of the Western powers were trying to figure out what to do with these territories that had been part of other country's colonial powers in this particular case the turks so the french and the british meet in the middle east uh sykes pico pico is the is the french diplomat and and sykes is the british diplomat and they both have some presence and and that at that time was palestine under the rule of the turks the ottoman period the the ottoman part of the ottoman empire they meet up in what is now northern israel and they basically said okay is this, this territory is going to be broken off from the Turkish Empire because the Turkish Empire is about to collapse at the end of World War I, and we've got to figure out what we're doing with this piece of land and a bunch of others. And that particular piece of land, which was prior to the state of Israel's founding, obviously well before it, uh, is, is agreed – would be under British occupation. So it will become part of the British Empire. It will effectively translate from the Turkish Empire to the British Empire. So from the end of World War One until 1948 – the british are in control of what they called at the time palestine which was pre-state israel and the british were it was like it was like, it was like a they had a colonial presence there they had a colonial presence in india and other parts of the world it was just another piece of land in the broader global british empire
2: it was called the british mandate and there were jews yeah. there and there were arabs there and there were other people there but mm. the brits ruled it and the brits ran the mandate but all along Britain had committed to a Jewish state. They did that during World War One with something called the Balfour Declaration. So the West committed to the Herzl vision of restoring the state of Israel during World War One, and it happened during World War Two. but in between, the Brits ruled that, and the Germans tried to get there, right? The Nazis tried to get there, but they didn't, and a guy named the Mufti went and threw in with Hitler, and thank God he didn't yeah. win, but... They were on the side of the Nazis and the Jews were on the side of the Brits. But it wasn't a lot of Jews. right? I don't have the numbers in front of me. I just want people to know the land was contested yeah. by many people.
1: This is very important. So the Mufti of Jer- Jerusalem was was the Palestinian, what we'd call a Palestinian Arab Muslim religious leader. And it is true. There are images of him meeting with senior Nazi officials. Uh, so he 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 went all in with the Third Reich. And there was Jewish presence all during that time. And Balfour, who issued the Balfour Declaration, which recently celebrated uh, its 100-year anniversary, is one of the most important documents in Zionist history. If you want to really study Zionist history, this is Google the Balfour, B-A-L-F-O-U-R, the Balfour Declaration, because it establishes the British are ruling—this is now post-World War I— the British are ruling pre-state Israel, and the British say, even though we're in charge here— We're ruling this place. We're effectively occupying this land. The Jews have always been here, and the Jews will always be here. And there will always be a Jewish presence here, and there should be. And so it laid the groundwork, the predicate for what became the Jewish state. And and years later and decades later, when there were these debates about the founding of the state, the Balfour Declaration was referred to. It was very rare for a senior official in the British Empire to talk about the territory that the British were occupying as part of their empire, to talk about it and define it in terms of being inhabited by other people and that it will always be inhabited by other people. In this sense, Israel was sort of an exception with how the British, or pre-state Israel, with how the British viewed territory within their empire, which was acknowledging that there was this continuity of Jewish life in Israel.
6: Coming up, the resilience of Israel. I'm Israeli. I was raised to think that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. I don't know how to teach the world. I know me. I'm not going anywhere.
2: The Town Hall Review returns in a moment.
6: Hi,
5: it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, Hugh will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
2: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Just a few moments ago, I mentioned Dan Senor as one of my go-to voices for understanding recent events in Israel. Another voice I'd put on my shortest list is Aviv Rediger, Reddit Gur is the senior analyst for the Times of Israel and a regular on the Daily Briefing, their 20-minute daily update on Israel and the war. I talked to Rave recently about the resilience of and indeed the implacability of his nation. People that I admire and respect. Tom Holland posted a note that this is all began with Arthur Balfour. That's so ignorant. It began with the Romans destroying the second temple. But I, I don't know what to do about this when smart people say stupid things about Israel. How do you respond to that? What do you attribute that to?
6: If you believe the affairs of the world are set down by its tiny elites sipping champagne in, you know, halls of power in, in Geneva, then you think that Balfour created the Jewish state because the British government, because of politics having to do with the Americans and World War I wanted and a little bit of anti-Semitism wanted to get rid of its Jews, created the Jewish state. The imperialist Britain didn't give the Zionist movement the territory. It was used by the Zionist movement. And when Russia, uh, the Jews were fleeing Russia, the Zionist movement used what are called the capitulations during the Ottoman periods, which which are immunities given to Russian citizens in the Ottoman Empire to advance Zionism. And when German Jews showed up, they used whatever was available. Small nations trying to survive will use whatever international politics they can To try to survive. And if you then conclude that international politics created them, well, that's very silly. By the time the UN voted in 1947 to establish a state of Israel, the Jews were not moving anywhere. And the Jews of the Arab world were about to be kicked out en masse in the most perfect ethnic cleansing of the 20th century, to almost the very last man, woman and child across 20 countries. And so you think that if the U.N. hadn't voted that way, what what would have happened to these people? They would have evaporated, disappeared. Nobody would have had to think about them. Uh, the, The Jews kept in the DP camps after World War II for three years. They're behind barbed wire, right? American high school kids are taught that the Americans showed up and liberated everybody. But Israeli Jews know that their grandparents were still behind barbed wire on German soil three years later, and that barbed wire was patrolled by British and American soldiers because the world didn't want them. So they had nowhere to go. The Jews created Israel. The world didn't want the Jews, and the Jews' response was Israel. And no, it wasn't Arthur Balfour. Is there any way to teach that effectively, given not just
2: social media, but the general collapse of the willingness to learn history apart from
6: identity politics now? Habib? I'm Israeli. I was raised to think that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. I don't know how to teach the world. I know me, and I'm not going anywhere.
2: How complicit is every adult in Gaza with this horror?
6: There is no question that every adult is not complicit. There is no question that huge numbers of Gazans are absolutely the victims of this moment, profoundly victimized by Hamas. Hamas murders, Hamas oppresses. The victims, the the, the hostages, include Muslim young men and young women. There is no question that Hamas is as much an enemy You know, I think Hamas is an enemy of the Palestinian cause in sort of grand strategic ways. But individually, specifically, it is a horrific, oppressive, disastrous, murderous organization to Palestinians. And we have polls from October 6th, literally the day before, that showed that Palestinians despise Hamas, not for any issue having to do with Israelis, just for its own internal oppression in Gaza. Having said that, there is huge support among ordinary Palestinians for the October 7 massacre. There is huge support for inflicting pain on the Israelis. There is huge support for holding hostages to get out Palestinian prisoners. And that is true. And that has always been true. The Palestinian political world doesn't have another story. The only story the Palestinians have to tell about themselves is that story of massive terrorism and violence. I want to, if I may, I'm sorry to talk so long, but I want to say one more thing. The Palestinians are having trouble getting away from Hamas's strategy, from terrorism as a liberation strategy, no matter how much it fails them. And the reason is what economists call the sunk costs problem. The sunk cost problem is when you have invested so much in one direction that to change direction becomes impossible, even if it's failing. This is true of companies and this is true of national movements. And so if it's true that terrorism can't work on us because we have nowhere to run away to, the whole anti-colonial premise – doesn't you want to call me a colonialist as a curse fine enjoy it but it tactically it won't work if that's true then every martyr as they call them shaheed every act that has ever been every single suicide bomber the palestinians have ever produced has something named for them some street some soccer field in palestine every one of those stories becomes a story of of folly and stupidity and murder instead of heroic martyrdom and liberation and so To not lose, to not all the sacrifices of the Palestinian story become empty. Coming up,
7: a wake up call for American Jewry. In my lifetime, I'm 62 years old. I've never seen anything remotely like this.
2: John Podhorek, when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment.
4: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt.
2: One of the most disturbing and revealing dynamics we've seen after Hamas's horrific GoPro pogrom in Israel is what we saw unleashed here in the United States. Anti-Semitic protests, anti-Semitic attacks on individuals, on Jewish-owned businesses. John Podhortz of Commentary Magazine and Commentary Magazine's podcast joined my program to start through something that many of us really didn't foresee happening here at least to the degree that we
7: have. Just yesterday, a synagogue that I uh, used to attend sporadically in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, Kesher, an Orthodox synagogue, a man shows up outside the door, starts shrieking, gas the Jews, and starts spraying at the doorway a foul-smelling liquid uh, into the air. He is finally apprehended by the police but um this is what is going on now almost routinely in the united states not only on college campuses but in cities and we'll see increasingly whether or not this happens at um, accessible synagogues and things like that in my lifetime i'm 62 years old i've never seen anything remotely like this somebody pointed out that between the lynching of leo frank in atlanta in 1915 and the slaughter of 11 Jews at the Tree of Life synagogue in 2018 in the United States the most philosemitic country that has ever existed there had never been like a Jew killed for being a Jew i mean there there were a couple of there was a there was a case on the Brooklyn bridge in 1991 and there were other little but basically Jews weren't targeted for being Jews specifically in the United States for more than a century And now on a daily basis, Jews are being targeted in petty ways, not just murderous ways.
2: I just had uh, Haviv Rediger on, and I I pointed out to him an argument that American universities are now where German universities were in the 20s. And I asked him, did he think it was possible in the United States that the United States would go the way of Germany? Because Germany was where uh, European Jews were most assimilated and also became where they became the victims of the greatest atrocity recorded in human history. And the GoPro pogrom, you know, where they had, the terrorists had the GoPro cameras sl- strapped on their head. The GoPro pogrom ought to have turned everyone in favor of American Jewry. It's had the opposite effect right. of drawing out all the poison. And I'm kind of stuck.
7: Right. So am I. Jews are afraid. Jews are afraid in this way for the first time in their lives. Jews have been afraid like everybody else in America, like they were urban population. Uh, you know, 40 percent of them, 50 percent of them lived within 10 miles of New York City uh, in the 1970s, and they were very afraid of crime and crime in their neighborhoods, and some of it was black-on-white crime or black-on-Jewish crime, and they were very afraid. But I don't think people were afraid of attack because they were Jews and where Neil Ferguson makes uh, an important analogy, though I don't think that, I think it's it's important as a warning shot, but I, I don't think it can really happen here in the same way, is that the reason to note the similarity between German universities and American universities is that people are under the delusion that these populist explosions that often lead to anti-Semitism are all by the unwashed. You know, they're by the proletariat, they're by, you know, what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. And in fact, this is an elite led attack on the Jewish people that is going on here. It is this uh, intersectionality, the idea that Jews are white colonial oppressors and therefore that the Israelis who got killed deserved what they got and that Hamas is in the right and Israel is in the wrong. These are not ideas that, you know, a, a Trump voter who is at Darlington Speedway cheering on, you know, stock car racing, that's not their idea. This is an idea bred... At, on college campuses, by Kimberly Crenshaw, the inventor of the idea of intersectionality, by, by people like that. And and it's been sort of 30, 35 years in the making. Ideas have been gestating uh, in the academy. And, you know, enough people have been trained in them over the course of 35 years to be there kind of as shock troops when... The trouble started and you take social media, which makes it very easy to organize people. Right. Just to say, come to Columbus Circle or come to, you know, come to the Grove or the farmer's market in L.A. or to the Magnificent Mile in Chicago at 9 p.m. because we're going to have a big, uh, big dust up. You can get a thousand people there in an hour if you need to. And maybe that's not that many people out of 330 million in the United States, but it sure makes a lot of noise. And then they break a lot of windows and they steal a lot of stuff and they start screaming slogans. Some of them are metaphorically uh, Israel genocidal, like from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. And then some of them are like the guy who drove past the Israeli embassy saying, you are all oppressors and we will kill you all.
2: And it is routine now on X to see videos of women walking into random restaurants to take down Israeli flags and then getting into verbal
7: altercations. With, it's, it's actually kind of astonishing to me what's happened. John, that is my neighborhood. That video that you mentioned is, you mentioned is a, a restaurant called the Hummus Kitchen. It's on 74th and Amsterdam. And you can see it. Okay, what went up last night. Someone walks into a restaurant where there's an Israeli flag hanging in the window and pulls it down.
2: John, I want you to opine a little bit. The thing that has been most surprising to me in the last 10 weeks that Israel has been at war is the relative sanguinity. Uh, uh, you guys are very, very relaxed about the Democratic Party when I listen to you. You all think that Biden and the relay race, it's Lloyd Austin this week, it was Jake Sullivan last week, it was Tony Bleak, and they go over and they hector the Israeli war cabinet, and then they come back. And I think I hear you saying that, don't worry about it, they're they're strong. They're doing this for their bait. I think the Democratic Party is fracturing, and I am not at all assured that they're going to stand by Israel. Why are you sanguine about this?
7: Oh, I'm not sanguine about that at all. I'm simply trying to analyze the situation day by day, and day by day, I think that Biden himself, I'm not sure about everybody else, that Biden himself has withstood pressures that I did not believe he had it within him to withstand, Biden is the leader of a party that has largely turned on Israel, and he is refusing to follow it down that road. I would have expected him to give up the ghost long before now on this matter. What's most important here is I don't think it matters in the terms of this conflict. That is to say, Israel is going to do what Israel has to do. There is 90% support or something like that in Israel for the mission of destroying Hamas utterly. And uh, Israel is a democratic country represented by democratic politicians, and they will do what they have to do for their voters uh, and will not be pushed around so easily by the United States.
2: Coming up, why is there no wisdom on the American University campus? There's no God on campus. No God,
0: no wisdom. Dennis
2: Prager in the final segment of our program. Stay with us.
0: Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and AMBER alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 528. 528- 86 standard message and data rates may apply.
2: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. My friend and colleague Dennis Prager is one of the more prominent Jewish voices in the nation today. He's been making the case for Israel and against anti-Semitism, speaking about ultimate issues for decades now. A few weeks back, he was speaking at a Milwaukee synagogue, addressing the foolishness of the university campus, a foolishness that has only gotten
5: worse. We'll close with Dennis Prager. Here's my deeper reason for why there's almost no wisdom on most campuses. There are a handful of wise professors, obviously, but why wisdom is not associatable, unfortunately, with with college. And this is obviously my own thought on this, but I have this belief for, well, um, almost 40 years. One day I was walking around the Columbia campus and wondering about this very issue, why I'm learning so much nonsense. And then, all of a sudden, and I, I give you my word as the Torah is behind me, uh, and, and that is, uh, I started to recall a verse from the Psalms that I said in first grade and kindergarten every morning at, 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 as part of the prayers, Reishit Chochma Yirat Adunai. Wisdom begins with reverence of God, or fear of God, depending how you translate Yirah. And then I realized, oh, wow, there's no God on campus. No God, no wisdom. And I know this offends, and I, but I don't mean to offend. But if, if you are offended, I'm sorry. But you may have a right to be. <laughs> uh, because if you're secular, what I am saying, I don't, I don't deny it is, there are, there are individuals who are secular who have wisdom, but there is no wisdom in the secular world. There's a lot of stupidity and nonsense in the religious world. But where there is wisdom, it has come from God-based ideas in the Western world, in my opinion. And the university is as God-free as a place exists. It wasn't always that case. In fact, it was the opposite. Harvard, Yale, etc., were all founded to produce ministers. The, the, uh, the insignia of Yale is in Hebrew from the Torah. That's how deeply immersed in Judaism and Christianity. You couldn't get a B.A. from Harvard till 1800 if you didn't know Hebrew. That, that's remarkable. Because you, in, you were considered foolish if you didn't know the Torah, if you didn't know the Bible in, 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 and could not be conversant in, in Hebrew for the Old Testament. Not, not anymore, obviously. And I believe that when, when there is no God uh, present, uh, you, after all, what do you rely on? If, if, if Judaism and Christianity are not going to be guides, I don't have, I don't mean veto every thought you have, but guides. What is your guide? And uh, don't tell me Enlightenment writers, okay? Students at the uh, at the University of Wisconsin are not being guided by uh, uh, by Voltaire. They're being guided by their heart. And that's not, it's fairly narcissistic, and it's also fairly foolish.
2: Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com, and sign up for a daily dose of the best in talk radio. And let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.